The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We have uh, spoken about our next guest uh, a number of times over the last couple of weeks because he has uh, taken the opportunity of uh, some of the divisiveness within American society to uh, opine on what he thinks should be done and what he's not impressed by. It's always uh, thoughtful comments from Robert Johnson, including this from him uh, on a Fox Business interview about the uh, virtue signaling from white leftists going on. It, it just shows me that white America is continually incapable of recognizing that black people have their own ideas and thought about what's in their best interest. That's a great place to start. And I shouldn't say virtue signaling. I should really say the purge because that's what it is. It's a purge. We're pleased to be joined now by Robert Johnson, the founder of Black Entertainment Television, BET, RLJ Companies, and uh, America's first black billionaire. Robert Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me. So uh, let's build off that uh, statement from you that we just played and talk about the movement to defund the police as well. There was an interesting piece in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution the other day where the city council in Atlanta, after the Rashard Brooks shooting and killing at the hands of police, by eight to seven, close, but eight to seven, they voted against defunding the Atlanta police. And one of the city councilmen in Atlanta, a black gentleman, said, uh, you know, I hear from residents as shootings have increased in the wake of that uh, police-involved uh, killing of Richard Brooks. I hear from my residents and they say, we don't want the police to go away. We actually want more police in our neighborhoods. So it, the white uh, in, in inspired, the white left inspired purge it's not only not helpful, it could potentially be harmful, couldn't it? Well, Dan, absolutely it could be harmful. And it, this goes with what I was saying early on the Fox News report, that white Americans, before they act on behalf of black Americans, they should simply ask black Americans what they really want. I think that shows respect. But to the point of police, if you were to take the police out of the community, you will increase crime significantly in the black community where there is a lot of crime for a lot of reasons, but the fact is there is crime. And this thought about so-called reimagining the police to send other people out to deal with crisis problems where they range from husband and wife disputes to mental illness and everything, they'll work until one of the sort of reimagined police get hurt or, heaven forbid, get killed because they couldn't control the situation. Or if they form a union which has all kinds of requirements and rules that they feel they need, that again puts us right back into the same place, police and the local elected officials not on the same page, even though they will argue they have a common goal. So no, I think this whole idea of defund the police is a liberal knee-jerk action to a issue that they created, thinking it's going to be popular among black people. But like I said before, black people have their own idea of what's important to them. And I love that as a foundation because it speaks to agency and, as you said, respect. And there's something else that is under address, too. One thing is what you're saying, telling black people what they want. The other thing is telling America who black people are. I want to get your perspective on how you think, if you agree with me, that the media caricatures black Americans. 
it is either celebrities in music and athletics or it is stories of crime in uh, crime infested neighborhoods. And in point of fact, there are very few people, white or black in this country, who commit crimes. The white violent crime rate is 0.12% of the white population. The black crime rate is 0.44% of the black population. So it's higher, but it's still a tiny fraction of the black American experience. Not all black Americans are living in um, in ghettos. A lot are middle-income families in the suburbs and the exurbs and, and everywhere else. And the media presentation is you're either a celebrity who needs to be a social activist or you're somebody who is a dependent of the state or living or trapped in a crime-ridden neighborhood or had a, a death of a family through violence. And there's nothing in between. And I think it provides a, a complete misunderstanding of what's happening in black America. Well, Dan, I think you're right uh, that white America has always had a stigmatized vision of black America, and that has found itself and been portrayed in the media because the media is a reflection of the uh, people who run the media and the people who watch the media. And so they tend to reinforce each other by giving people what they think they know is of interest and what the people who watch it believed to be of interest. But having said that, there is a definite disparity in the equality of black life and white life in America, and we shouldn't ignore that. And just I'll give you just one data point. The median income is $170,000. The median income of a black American family is $17,000. That's a 10-time spread and income and therefore wealth. That gap has to be closed, and it has to be closed by white America coming to grips with the fact that they've got to figure out a way to close that wealth gap by making sure equal opportunity, equal rights, and racial inequities are eliminated so that we can be equal in what is part of the American dream, which is access to capital, access to wealth, and their access for the ability to care for your family, build a nice home, build a stable community, take care of your your health, and all the other things that go with having the income to do so. So we can't overlook that. There clearly is sort of stereotypes in the way blacks are perceived, and then based on a sort of an unconscious bias about how blacks are depicted. But the fact is, there are some real serious divergence in things like income, housing, education, and the like. I, I want to talk about that, but it, just that, that statistic, I mean, I'm looking at uh, 2016 census data, median household income for Indian Americans, 131000 for East Asians, 85000 for whites, 67000 So are you talking about median household income or net worth? The median household income for whites can't be $170,000. That's almost the top 2%. Well, if you look at the Pew Research study, remember now the median is, Half, half, half above, more, half below. And half or below that. That's when you get, come to the median. Now, if you talk about the average. No, I'm talking about median from the census. Well, what I have been, been reading about and what I see, and I've seen it quoted throughout all of the major uh, publications. Okay, when but. When you look at median income, there's a 10 times differential between white families and black families. Okay, so the underlying issue about the disparity. So why do you think that is, and why do you think that it's exacerbated even as 
Jim Crow has been relegated to the ash heap of history and all the money that's been spent on social welfare programs over the last 50 years and all the money that's been spent on K through 12 education, which has gone up at a 45 degree angle, including in urban centers. Why does that disparity persist in your view? To me, Dan, it's very simple. It's access to capital. That's it. White Americans didn't get wealthy simply because they're white. Black Americans aren't below white income simply because they're black. There's nothing in the DNA of a white person that makes them have a greater work ethic, more concerned about their kids and their family, more interested in owning a home and everything else that goes with having a stable part of the American dream. It is they have access to capital. Black Americans do not. And I'm sitting here, as you describe me, as the first African-American billionaire. I grew up in a little town not far from Chicago called Freeport, Illinois. Yeah. And so when you think about that, I got my start in building black entertainment television on a $500,000 cash investment, capital investment, from a guy named John Malone who owned the cable companies at the time. Yeah, right. That's the difference. And going all the way back to slavery, slavery was a wealth transfer. People who owned slaves had free labor. Just imagine what you and your listeners could do if you had free labor. You didn't have to pay for the guy who mowed your lawn. You didn't have to pay for the guy who comes and fix your sink or your refrigerator when it breaks down. You didn't have to pay for your babysitter. You didn't have to pay for somebody to help you build a house or, or a barn. Just think of what you would do with that capital. You would invest it. And the one thing I want to point out, and people should know, your listeners should know, that money that many white Americans accumulated came from free slave labor. Mm -hmm. That's how this country has grown. Black Americans were not in the queue for access to capital because it was denied. For first, they were property. Then, like you said, when you're talking about earlier, Jim Crow segregation, it's lack of access to quality education, it's lack of access to job opportunity. You put those impediments in front of anybody, they're going to find themselves cut out in a free market capitalist economy, cut out from the opportunity to grow and accumulate wealth. When we come back with BET founder Robert Johnson, I want to uh, get back to this matter of access to capital, the argument that you're making, and delve into that a bit deeper. More with Robert Johnson when we return. Listen to podcasts of the show at danprofshow.com. We're back with BET founder Robert Johnson, and I want to go back to uh, what you were saying with respect to access to capital. You're a gentleman in his 70s. You went to University of Illinois after graduating from Freeport High School. You got your master's at Princeton, and then you were on your way to your successful business career. So it does happen. You did it. Why doesn't it happen more, particularly for people who didn't grow up under Jim Crow like you did? It doesn't happen because there's not enough focus on making sure that capital get to people who are like me, who had an idea, 
reached out to a gentleman named John Malone, was fortunate enough to be in an industry called cable TV when it was growing. Mm -hmm. But I was that one in ten. You know, you can't do this if you just drop it on the one in a hundred or the one in a thousand. Sure, that'll take me wealthy, but there are 40 million African-Americans in this country. But now, now let's go back to the reparations conversation. And there's 40 million African-Americans in this country, as you said. And, and obviously, um, you would, regardless of the piddling over the statistics, there are a lot of successful black Americans um, who have net worths in excess of $350,000. So is there is there any income tiering to your proposal or just as a general rule, because just as a general statement, everybody gets $350,000 because Everybody is a descendant and suffered at some point in their familial history from the racist institutions of Jim Crow and slavery. Yeah, because here's the thing, Dan. Let's say you're you're a wealthy guy living in one of the you know the uh, high rise apartments oh, sure. on, yeah, on, sure. on Michigan Avenue, <laughs> and, and somebody you know you make all the money on the radio station, you get all this money. Yeah, somebody sure. breaks into your house, steals your TV, steals your computer, locks you in the closet, does all kinds of bad things to you, and you file and you get and the court say, Dan, you're awarded damages. The court doesn't look at you and say, well, Dan, you're doing pretty well financially. I don't think you should get these damages because you're okay. You mm-hmm. don't need them. Right. They say you are entitled to this because you have been harmed through no fault of your own. And the court says our job is to give you justice. Mm-hmm. And in the case of reparations, it is justice plus atonement. Because if white America could ever atone, Think about the power of forgiveness manifested in saying we are going to bring you equal and give you a great shot at the American dream. And you know what? Black Americans are the most forgiving people you will ever find on the face of this earth. Do you guys remember the massacre of church people in Charleston, South Carolina? Yeah, of course. And you know what the first thing that the parishioners who survived that event did at the hearing sentences? Forgave the shooter, right. They forgave the shooter. And remember the uh, black brother of the guy who was killed by a white cop because she thought he was in her house? Yeah. What did he ask the judge? Can I hug her? Yes, it was unbelievable. I mean, so when you think of the power of forgiveness, that to me is probably the best way this country gets beyond this path and start moving to that bright future of what we all like to call American exceptionalism. Well, let me just challenge your analogy about the guy breaking into my house and doing me harm and so forth. It falls down, of course, as you'll recognize, so I'm interested in your response, because we know who the perpetrator was and we know who the victim was. In the case of reparations, I'm going to write a check for $11,000, as you said, And um, I didn't perpetrate anything. I wasn't a part of Jim Crow legislative imposition and I wasn't a slaveholder. And so the justice system works to provide recompense to the victim and to hold perpetrators responsible. But you have generations of separation between the perpetrators and the victims. Yeah, that's a legal argument. If you were really in a court of law, that would be something to argue. But reparations never gets to a court of law. Reparations is a society looking at a past sin against another group and saying we owe it not only to the victims, we owe it to ourselves to make this right. So I would say the same thing. If you owned a great 
Rathaus restaurant in Munich, Germany. And people came to you and said, you grew up long after Hitler was gone. And that's it. And people came to you and said, you know, Dan, we're going to tax your restaurant because you're going to have to pay some money to help the Jews who moved on to Israel and resettled there because of what we did. I can't imagine you would be able to look your friends in the eye to say, look, I wasn't born when Hitler did his thing. I don't know any of the victims. I don't want to pay them anything. I don't believe that. I don't know you well, but I, I mean, know you at all, Blake. I don't believe you would do that. Well, and I don't believe you look your kids in the eye. Mm-hmm. And when they read the history of what Hitler did to Germany and to the Jews and the, basically the United World War II, I don't think you could look your kids in the eye and say, Dad is not buying into this reparations thing for Jews. I'm sorry. I'm just not giving them anything. Let I just you, don't believe you do that. Let me uh, ask you one, uh, one other question before we unfortunately have to let you go, and that is about, um, okay, $350,000. Then what about uh, the welfare state programs? Can we then reimagine the welfare state and uh, start? In, and now that people have seed capital to chart their own course, why would we need welfare state programs? You know what? Absolutely, you can reimagine the level of welfare state programs. Because think about this: there's food stamps, there's direct welfare payments, there's subsidized housing. All of those things are made part of the welfare state because the people who would love to own a home, don't have the down payment to buy a home. So, yes, right. you would reduce many of these things. You would, reduce, you would reduce social problems in black communities. You would reduce crime in black communities. You would increase, I believe, you, you would increase families staying together, which is, a, which is a major force in wealth. If there's a husband and a wife in the home, those, those homes tend to be higher in wealth and income and family stability. Absolutely. Because why would an African-American man want to leave his woman when they're both got jobs, they're both on a home, they're both doing well, there's no frustration, no stress, because one is not getting, uh, getting achieving what they should do as a man to take care of his family, protect his home. A lot of those welfare programs that, by the way, people are paying taxes for right now. Yeah, absolutely are a, the direct result of lack of access to income, well, I'll tell you, whether it's health care yeah. or whether it's home ownership. I'll tell you what, it's really interesting. I want to continue this conversation with you. We're going to have to have you back soon because, uh, you know, that that is a way to potentially get somewhere, I think. I think it's really interesting, and I knew you'd have uh, layered thinking on the topic, which is why it's so enjoyable to speak with you. Robert Johnson, founder of BET, RLJ Companies. America's first black billionaire and a uh, free pretzel, a Freeport pretzel for life. Uh, Robert Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. I look forward to joining you again. Take care, Dan. Take care. Come together right now over me.
The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. In the uh, face of so much fear-induced crack pottery, it's uh, nice to have a senator like Rand Paul, who's read a book or two, who provides some perspective in these Senate hearings when you have the experts come before him to, uh, again, prognosticate and prevaricate and cover their behinds from their previous prognostications and prevarications. And so him, Rand Paul, yesterday when uh, Fauci and Redfield, the CDC director, were assembled for Q&A, invoking Frederick Hayek, which is always a good place to start, and the fatal conceit of the central planner, the fatal conceit of the expert and those who believe in the central planner and the expert of the small group of experts who know better how to manage a free society than do 330 million Americans interacting on a voluntary basis. It is a fatal conceit to believe any one person or small group of people has the knowledge necessary to direct an economy or dictate public health behavior. I think government health experts during this pandemic need to show caution in their prognostications. It's important to realize that if society meekly submits to an expert and that expert is wrong, a great deal of harm may occur when we allow one man's policy or one group of small Uh, men and women to be foisted on an entire nation. Take, for example, government experts who continue to call for schools and daycare to stay closed or that recommend restrictions that make it impossible for a school to function. For a time, there may not have been enough information about coronavirus in children, but now there is. There are examples from all across the United States and the world that show that young children rarely spread the virus. Let's start in Europe. 22 countries have reopened their schools and have seen no discernible increases in cases. These graphs behind me show no surge when schools open. The red line is where the schools opened. There is data from Austria, Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Netherlands. No spike when schools are opened. And we have a recent study from Brown University that projected students are likely to return to school in the fall with approximately 63 to 68 percent of the learning gains in reading relative to a typical school year and 37 to 50 percent of the learning gains in math. We've got a problem with this generation of students and, frankly, some of their more recent predecessors being able to read, comprehend and do math certainly at grade levels as they progress through the school system. And now you're saying, Brown University is concluding, that because of the approach that we took with the uh, failed experiment in virtual learning, the gains that you're supposed to get in a typical year were a fraction of what they need to be. Gains even as you're trying to play catch-up in so many school districts, keeping kids learning to read and do math at grade level. So what we have in terms of real-world evidence on the health side what we have in terms of real-world impact on the intellectual development side, which is why uh, Scott Atlas, Dr. Scott Atlas, friend of the show, we've had him on many times, former head of neuroradiology at Stanford Medical Center, had uh, this to say recently about this debate about whether or not to send kids back to school in the fall. Children have virtually zero risk 
of getting a serious complication, virtually zero risk of dying. We know that. It's from the data all over the world, not just in the U.S. There's no arguing about that data. We also know all over the world that children only rarely, if ever, transmit the disease. And so there's really no risk, but there's tremendous harm in not having in-person schools, as the American Association of Pediatrics pointed out, as the hospital for sick kids in Toronto, one of the world's best hospitals for pediatric medicine, pointed out when they recommended full opening, no masks, no distancing. There is no science behind having children not attend schools. There is zero science for having children wear masks or have spacing when they have zero risk from the disease. It's totally outrageous. It is outrageous. And as you heard Dr. Atlas say, and Rand Paul repeated it in his exchange with Fauci, there's just no science behind any of this. It's dishonest. Thus, we know it to be demagoguery. And the question is, what are you going to do with all this information that's available, with these experts that are weighing in, with the data and the evidence and the science as we know it, to push back against people, I don't care who they are, I don't care what party they are, who are propagating crack pottery as it pertains not only to you and your livelihood and your freedom, but your child's education. I hope wherever you are, if you're running into this sort of ignorance and politicization of science and data, that you are willing to go to bat for your kid and their education. You're willing to take on the school board member. You're willing to take on the teachers union. I mean, this has to happen in the fall. Otherwise, you we're just considering conceding more turf to overarching government. And I'm not just talking about inside the beltway at every level. You continue to shrink. And so do your children as the state grows and as they shrink, so do their prospects. So do the prospects of their future in this great country. This is Dan Proft. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Elite colleges need to reform themselves from the inside, led by those who understand that their right to speak freely implies my right to do so, and further understand that our freedom, our very capacity for self-government, depends in significant part on the liberal arts. Those are the words of Thomas Klingenstein, who is a principal in the investment firm of Cohen Klingenstein, and the chairman of the board of directors of the Claremont Institute. Um... It would be nice if that's possible. Clearly, Mr. Klingenstein believes they're possible. Let's explore that by talking about a, a game of golf he had with the president of Bowdoin College, an elite liberal arts school, and uh, what that tells us about the prospects for internal reform. Uh, pleased to be joined by Thomas Klingenstein. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, uh, pleasure. And so... Um, Tell us about your round of golf with Barry Mills, the president of Bowdoin College. Yes. Um, this actually happened some time ago. Um, I was playing golf, and he realized I was conservative. He asked me what it was about liberal schools that I objected to, liberal schools like his own. Bowdoin is a very elite, very selective school in Maine. And I mentioned uh, diversity, as it's come to be understood. 
um, you know, identity politics, we refer to it today. And uh, I told him that I was against dividing society, dividing colleges, society more generally, based on race, and um, that what I favored was inclusion, uh, a unified, no hyphenated, uh, uh, so, uh, no hyphenated people. Uh, and, um, and he objected to that, um, not so much on the golf course, um, you know, on the protocols or that one is civil, but then he gave a speech someone, some months later in which he described the conservative that he played golf with. And this conservative, he said, didn't want blacks on campus. And that was the way he was able to, or the way he did uh, interpret what I was saying, quite wrongly, of course. And it was also a way of um, shutting me up, right? He was telling me that this was not a permissible opinion. And of course, he didn't want to engage me. He just wanted to dismiss me. And so what happened, I wrote an article in the in a journal that's published by the Claremont Institute, which you mentioned, uh, in which I pointed some of this out. And um, that caused something of a brouhaha at Bowdoin. And that was ultimately followed by a, a lengthy report by the National Association of Scholars, which demonstrated that the curriculum is uh, highly politicized. And the kind of ideas that the president expressed on the golf course, well, those are the ideas that are taught at um, a place like Bowdoin. And I should emphasize there's nothing unique about Bowdoin. We studied Bowdoin because it, it, it wasn't unique. It's representative, I think, of colleges, particularly elite colleges. Well, so, so, so that. Yeah. So, so President Barry Mills strikes me as the uh, fish who doesn't recognize he's in water. And if that is the case, uh, and it's representative Bowdoin's representative of uh, colleges uh, throughout the country, then how is it exactly? What, what, what will be the trigger for internal reform that you're, you're hopeful will come to pass? Um, I don't know the answer to that, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I should first say, that this is something that we've been talking about now for perhaps 70 years. Mm -hmm. uh, this kind of discussion was um, initially prompted by uh, William F. Buckley. Uh, and he wrote a book, quite famous, still read, God, God Man, Man at Yale. Yale. Yeah. Right. In, you know, then it wasn't so much um, uh, political correctness he was objecting to, but rather... Um, that they weren't teaching capitalism and they were atheistic. But um, the point is that even then he called on alums to stop uh, funding uh, Yale. That never happened. And there have been many calls uh, subsequent to that. Uh, but alums are, as you know, very committed to their uh, college. Uh, they don't know what's going on. Uh, some of it, I think, is quite willful. They don't want to look. But for whatever reason, uh, financial pressure has not been uh, brought to bear. I mean, at the moment, there's a certain amount of financial pressure, obviously, given the virus. Yeah, uh, well, that, yeah, not with, a, not with a $35 billion endowment, though. But, but uh, they may recognize what's going on in Yale when it's no longer called Yale. Well, that's a good point. And the question is, 
Is Yale going to change its name? Obviously, people's identity, sense of self, those that went to Yale, very much tied up, right, with the name itself. Just in the limited time we have, I wanted to get to something else that you wrote, which I really enjoyed, uh, this piece, uh, Preserving the American Way of Life at uh, AmericanMind.org, and have you develop this uh, suggestion you made for the Republican Party, the Republican Party's mission, uh, as articulated, shouldn't be just about freedom, shouldn't just be constitutional government. You say the mission should be securing the conditions necessary to pursue a worthy life, a worthy life, that phrase in particular. Can you elaborate on that? Well, that's really what the founders meant when they were referring to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They meant really virtue. They meant the ability to lead a good, or I use the term, worthy life. What we need is to have a society where people generally agree on what constitutes a worthy life, and that society supports the values that promote this common understanding of a worthy life. And those values, they constitute the American, or what used to be the American way of life. So to say that to preserve the values necessary to achieve a worthy life, to say that another way is to say we want to preserve the American way of life. And that really is the end game. He is Thomas Klingenstein. He's a principal in the investment firm of Cohen Klingenstein LLC and chairman of the board of directors of the Claremont Institute. Thomas Klingenstein, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. Welcome back. Joe Biden, in his uh, first press briefing in about three months, emerged from his basement to uh, offer canned criticism of the president on everything from COVID-19 to uh, you know, their uh, fantastical Boris Pasternak quality Russian fiction. But again, uh, it's difficult for Vice Pre- former Vice President Biden to keep it together for too long. And there were a number of instances where he couldn't. For example, Joe Biden saying uh, out loud what uh, shouldn't be said out loud, sort of a Ron Burgundy moment. He will read whatever you put in front of him. You're not supposed to disclose that there's a pre-approved list of reporters with a pre-approved list of questions, Joe. He gave me a list of how to recognize. Is Alex AP out there? Uh-huh. Uh, also, uh, when you're uh, reading from the prepared list of interrogators uh, with their uh, questions, I'm sure Donna Brazil style giving the answers to the candidate. Uh, I'm sure the press will be as helpful as they can be in that vein. But you should probably remember or perhaps have it memorialized on that note. The name of your hometown paper. Where's the uh, the Wilmington, uh, uh, the Delaware State News? I mean, Delaware News Journal, I should say. Yeah. How are you? You better get their name right, too, when you call on them if they're your hometown team. And then uh, there's the matter of uh, the memorials 
and uh, Joe Biden offering comment on the destruction of memorials by Marxist mobsters around the country. Where does he draw the line? Well, certainly you would draw the line at the Jefferson and Lincoln memorials, if only he could remember which was which. But it's fundamentally different than pulling down the statue or going into the Lincoln Memorial and trying to pull, uh, you know, not Lincoln Memorial. I, I, that, that, that's a bad example. The Jefferson Memorial and grabbing Jefferson off his chair. Right. Um, Jefferson not seated. Lincoln is. But OK. Victor Davis Hanson writing about uh, Joe Biden. A hard left candidate for vice president will have to do the campaign messaging as a public auxiliary of and in line with Joe Biden. She will privately reassure her base that it's all a moderate con, assuming that leftist voice voters are sophisticated and cynical enough to be willing to be lied to for now for the sake of gaining power shortly. It will be problematic to assure the country that Joe Biden is 110 percent fit to be president in November, but then to leak to the public by February that he's crazy and it's past time for his radical vice president, regrettably, to move him out. It will be interesting to see how that plays out, whether the running mate is Kamala Harris or somebody who actually presents as more moderate like Val Demings. But Victor Davis Hanson says, that, you know, this uh, con, this moderate con, as he calls it, that the left is playing is not without peril. In the chaos of July, Biden's handlers have been acclaimed geniuses for anesthetizing him. But in the different season of October, he may finally be forced out from his lockdown in the wild manner that soon to be looters and arsonists at last emerged from quarantine in June. Pent up, angry, incoherent and self-destructive. And thus uh, the question about whether or not the spike in cases in certain states, which uh, certainly will not persist till, till October. But if you have a second wave beginning in November, beginning in, in uh, September into October, is there a way for Democrats to renege on their commitment to those three debates? Because, you know, including after yesterday's press conference, that's what a lot of them have to be thinking. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. This too shall pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by conservatives in particular who say this moment of purge and civil unrest and uh, disintegrating civic institutions, this too shall pass. The pendulum will swing. This shoot too shall pass into what? Uh, Roger Kimball and his piece at uh, New York Post talking about uh, the present being in part of the continued progression of the radicalism of the 60s. Cites Evelyn Waugh, who observed in 1939. But have you read Brighthead's Revisited? Evelyn Waugh is great. One of the great authors of the 20th century. Underappreciated. If you haven't read Brighthead Revisited, read it. Evelyn Waugh, 1939, noting... The more elaborate the society, the more vulnerable it is to attack and the more complete its collapse in case of defeat. He, on the eve of World War II, at at a time like the present, it is notably precarious. If it falls, we shall see not merely a dissolution of a few joint stock corporations, but of the spiritual and material achievements of our history. This too shall pass into what? 
Uh, Eric Kaufman is a professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. He's the author of White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. Uh, he had a piece in Quillette that is fascinating because of the survey that he did. He um, wanted to ascertain how willingly liberal Americans are to jettison America's cultural identity and uh, history. So on May 7th, he asked what he thought were outlandish questions, 16 statements in which he wanted to get a reaction from self-identified liberal and very liberal, mainly young whites. He did the same questions again, the same statements to which he wanted to get responses a month later, June 15th, after the George Floyd killing and the protests. I'll give you an example. One of the statements get the reaction from those he surveyed move after public consultation to a new American anthem that better reflects our diversity as a people. Francis Scott keys out. We need a new anthem. The number of respondents, young, white, liberal respondents supporting that 71% in May, 80% in June. Another one respectfully remove the monument to four white male presidents at Mount Rushmore as they presided over the conquest of native people and repression of women and minorities. 44 uh, percent. I'm sorry, this was uh, this isn't a, this isn't a, a, a May versus June. This is liberal, self-identified liberal versus very liberal. So on the anthem change, 71 percent of liberal people supported anthem change, 80 percent of very liberal. And in uh, Mount Rushmore, destroying Mount Rushmore, 44 percent of liberal support and 58 percent of very liberal support. Move after public consultation to a new American constitution that better reflects our diversity as a people. Yeah, new uh, constitution. 70% of liberals support that. 79% of very liberals support that. Rewrite the founding of our country. We're doing it historically through the 1619 Project. Why not do it formally by scrapping the constitution and starting over? That's what the left would support. And even those who describe themselves as just liberal which is radical left. I mean, liberal and very liberal. I don't know substantively what the distinction is, but we'll ask Eric Hoffman for that. Eric Hoffman joins us now. Eric, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Great to be here, Dan. Uh, fascinating, uh, fascinating survey exercise that you did. Thanks. Um, so, um, you know, g- give us some more color on this. Uh, you, you intended to be, as I said, and as you wrote in Quillette, outlandish, but it turns out you weren't outlandish enough because... Uh, these were pedestrian ideas to many of those you surveyed. Yeah, I was, I was initially devising this as a way of just thinking, okay, uh, you know, how, how many people would agree to these statements, which I did think would, would elicit very little support. Um, however, what I did in the survey was I, I was talking about um, this in the context of, of um, helping to address structural racism and sexism, and therefore... Given this new religion, uh, which is about upholding these sacred values of anti-racism and anti-sexism, that when you, I thought that if I actually referenced those and talked about diversity in these questions, that would open the door to to somewhat higher responses. And in fact, that, as you could tell, is exactly what happened, that you had sort of 70, 80 percent support for, you know, an anthem change for constitution change, majority support amongst 
Uh, the very liberal group, which is sort of 40% of liberals fall into that very liberal category. So it's not an insignificant group uh, who say, uh, remove Mount Rushmore. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, this was quite a revelation. And then I sort of decided to run it, uh, you know, after all of the events, after George Floyd killing. Um, and what you saw was a shift of sort of almost an entire scale point out of five in the direction of, of these culturally revolutionary changes. So, yeah, I think it's it's really quite astounding, and it shows just how willing, uh, I suppose, the, this liberal, particularly this young white liberal segment of America, is willing to, to more or less erase what's there and start with a fresh sheet of paper. Karen Atia, who is the global opinions editor of the Washington Post, tweeting... Uh, uh, the other day, the lies and tears of white women hath wrought the 1921 Tulsa massacre, the murder of Emmett Till, exclusion of black women from feminist movements, 53% of white women voting for Trump. That's what she's really getting to. Uh, white women are lucky that we're just calling them Karens and not calling for revenge. I mean, white women, right. I, I mean, white women, white people are, are lucky. We are just calling and saying and doing a whole lot of things that are really sit the hell down fine compared to what we could be calling and doing. I'm just saying, be happy we are calling for equality and not actual revenge. And the response from those young white leftists that you surveyed will be, I'm sorry, what do you want me to do? <laughs> right, right, because the, the, the way to understand this really is as a sort of secular religion where the sacred values are number one race and then gender and sexuality is sort of a little bit further down. As long as you reference those sacred values, it's like referencing the devil or the Lord. You know, it, it, it essentially uh, shuts down the argument and anything done in that, the only proper response is to bow your head and then say amen, right? So this is kind of a, a secular religion, and these are the sacred values. Uh, and so really the world uh, comes to be seen in, in one dimension, and that is, you know, is this statue, you know, racist or not racist? That's it. We don't care about any of the other achievements. And also people looking at that statue, their motives can only be if they're white, racist triumphalism, and, and, and if they're non-white, feeling um, the impact of racism, right? So it's all that, that very simple one-dimensional, whereas the actual uh, complexity of the story is that, in fact, people who, who see those monuments interpret them in vastly different ways and and the individuals had are many 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 dimensions to to their achievements uh but of course everything gets boiled down to this, just this one sacred value and that trumps everything else uh mark hemingway talks about the that exact counter narrative talking about a quiet counter revolution underway noting that uh 17 states have enacted legislation uh, protecting first amendment rights on campus uh, currently, you have the National Association of Scholars working with four states, Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, and Arizona, to pass laws to increase intellectual diversity at public universities. South Dakota has actually already done so. Um, yeah, I mean, now I'm, I'm all for looking for green shoots here, but that seems, <laughs> seems to be um, uh, that, that, that seems to be a counter-revolution that has a long way from having a material impact on the trajectory of things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but I do think that the conservative movement has been in some ways a bit culpable in focusing so heavily on foreign policy and, and economic policy that, that, that the cultural, the educational, the historical side of things has been neglected for many decades, partly because it was seen as too hot to handle or it's maybe the, the province of it's been captured by 
by the left. But I think the, the you know, conservatives are going to need to get into the detail of, for example, state uh, history curriculum, to which textbooks are, are, are mandated. They're going to need to get into the detail of universities and how they are are regulated. So, for example, you know, when, and one of the things that is needed is really to hold universities, to, to have some government regulator that essentially forces universities to obey the law and not to deviate from the law. And that's going to actually require patient policy work, which has not taken place. And, and slowly, I think, it will have to be turned that way. You have to get into these institutions that are more or less directing the culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, otherwise, yeah, otherwise, 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 Evelyn Wow's prediction comes true, I'm afraid. Uh, Eric yeah. Hoffman, Eric professor of politics at Birkbeck College at the University of London and author of White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. Professor Kaufman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. I'm going up the rails on a crazy train. I'm going up the rails on a crazy train. I'm going up the rails on a crazy train. Listen to podcasts of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, we uh, tackled Tucker Carlson's uh, excoriation of Indiana Senator Mike Braun yesterday uh, on yesterday's show. And uh, on yesterday's Tucker Carlson show, he used his conversation with Mike Braun to uh, build uh, a monologue around the problem with the Republican Party, the need for that problem to be fixed because the Republican Party is the only thing standing between us and the barbarians who are well beyond the gate at this juncture. And that's where uh, Tucker Carlson started framing the three things he believes sensible center right voters need to demand of their GOP office holders and candidates. First, uh, why the GOP? You may be dissatisfied with it, but uh, recognize that it's the only available vehicle between now and November. The fact remains the GOP is the only institution still open to the rest of us, to Americans who want to live as they did just 15 years ago, quietly, productively, without being harassed and harangued by self-righteous lunatics who mean them harm, and they do. If you want to be left alone to do your job and raise your family in this country, you will need a protector. That protector must be the Republican Party. There are no other options, but it must be a very different kind of Republican Party. Mm, a protector. Uh, remember the conversation we were having about the idea, and this is from uh, Tucker Carlson's program as well, the idea that uh, there are people who play by the rules, and we'll get to that more in a bit, who feel neglected and undefended. Another example, the couple in St. Louis defending their home we discussed yesterday. The 911 call that we played from the Tucker Carlson show making that very point. Feeling neglected and undefended. You know, uh, in politics, if you want to have a particular constituency, you need to identify them. You need to tell people, uh, I am going to, in my role in whatever office I'm running for, fight for your interests, and then you need to do that. 
I mean, it's more complicated than it sounds, but it's also just as simple as it sounds. Mark your territory, mark your people, and say, I am going to this uh, office in order to fight for your interests. Watch me do it. Tucker Carlson on uh, the very different Republican Party. They're failing because they haven't done much that is worth doing. They haven't tried very hard to improve your life. When the crisis came, they fled. They did nothing to defend you. They did nothing to defend the country. They were paralyzed. Their so-called principles turned out to be bumper stickers they wrote 40 years ago. They had no clue what to do. So from this day forward, it's very simple. We're going to have to tell them what to do. And that will work. No matter what they may believe privately, politicians respond to organized groups of voters. They want to win above all. So they head to where the votes are. That's exactly right, as I want to say. The problem with most politicians is they're, they're cowards. That's the bad news. It's also the good news. The good news is they're cowards. The bad news is they're cowards. Why is it the good news? Is because exactly what uh, Tucker said, which is they're susceptible to pressure. You bring pressure to bear such that it, they believe it imperils their election or re-election chances, and you've got an audience. So bringing pressure to bear. Okay, that's, now it's time to give form to that function. So the demand, the three things that must be demanded, starting with number one, MAFA. First is vigorous defense of total equality under the law. We are equal because we are citizens. Every American has precisely the same rights as every other American, period. That is the promise of America. It's why millions of people move here. For a long time, we knew that no one questioned it. It was obvious, but it no longer is obvious. And there are many who are working in the opposite direction. Republicans must counterbalance this. They must work as hard as they can to make America fair again. Wealth, appearance, ancestry can play no role whatsoever in the eyes of the law. Make America fair again. I mean, some of these things uh, will probably strike you as they did me as obvious, but they're not being clearly communicated. They're not actually a uh, uh, part of what the GOP brand is right now. What's a brand? A promise to deliver something. If you ask somebody, what is the Trump brand? What is the name Trump a promise to deliver? What is the uh, moniker Republican Party a promise to deliver? Are they going to say, make America fair again? Are they going to say it's fairness? It's equal justice under the law? I don't think that's been clearly established as their brand because of what Carlson said uh, in the, uh, previously in the segment, which is... Um, they haven't been courageous when courage is demanded. Make America fair again, number one. Number two, you have to be able to think and speak freely if you want to have a free society. Second, Republicans must defend our freedom of speech. We are not a free society without that. This is not simply a debate about the First Amendment and its limits. It's bigger than that and more important. If you can't articulate something, if you're not allowed, you can't think it. And uh, what is the left's? disposition towards free thinking and free speech? Well, they want to silence dissent and they use the cover of eradicating hate speech as their way to silence dissent. And this is what you see in terms of the pressure being brought to being brought to bear on Twitter and Facebook by woke corporations who are trying to pay tribute. So the mob leaves them alone. I disagree with you. That's the new hate speech synonymous with hate speech as far as these uh, Censors are concerned. 
And so, again, the clear contrast that needs to be drawn. You cannot have a free society when people are not allowed to think and speak freely. The left is committed to eliminating the ability of people to think and free and speak freely also is committed to compelling you to say, to speak, number one, and to speak what they want you to speak. So you're compelled to speak to celebrate the cultural Marxist agenda, and you are silenced if you say anything otherwise. That's a problem. It's also an opportunity for contrast. It's also a core deliverable. Lastly, Carlson talks about uh, the need to represent middle-income families. He uses the Marxist language of class. I don't use that. What I say and what I've said for a decade, people who play by the rules, regardless of income level, people who play by the rules, did everything they're supposed to do, holding up their end, the kind of people Tucker described at the outset of the monologue, quiet, productive lives that are being led. And finally, we must never forget that in the end, the Republican Party exists to serve the interests of normal people, ordinary people. Middle-class families are the core of this country. They are our hope for the future, our only hope. And yet both parties have shamelessly abandoned them. Middle-class families have no national spokesman. They have no lobby in Washington. Republicans pretend to be their champion. You know by now that they are not. Instead of improving the lives of their voters, the party feeds them a steady diet of mindless symbolic victories. And um, this becomes a problem if you're not materially improving the quality of life for those who you said are your people, your constituents. And again, regardless of race or income or religion, people who play by the rules in this country, who exhibit the founding values, who abide the, uh, the processes uh, to advance positive change, who live quiet, productive lives. If President Trump and the Republican Party can't own that group politically, then they will not be successful politically and they will not deserve to be successful. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. to the Dan Prof Show. I want to uh, continue the chat we were having about uh, Tucker Carlson's uh, review of the GOP and the three demands that must be made of GOP office holders and candidates that we were discussing before the break. The three being MAFA, make America fair again. Everybody is equal before the law. The law should be colorblind. It should also be blind anybody's uh, socioeconomic status and any other identifier, any other condition of birth. It is about uh, conduct not and character, not about uh, color or any other identitarian attribute. That's number one, MAFA. Number two, a impassioned defense of free thinking and free speech if you're going to have a free society. And don't be cowered by the left's invocation of hate speech as their facade to try to eliminate dissent, which is what they're doing. And then thirdly, a clear and a specific defense of Tucker Carlson using middle class families. I don't like that vernacular. I would say people who play by the rules. Also not about your income, just as the other two imperatives are not about your income. It's about playing by the established rules. It's about living the quiet, productive lives 
that uh, Americans who play by the rules live. And they need to be defended. And uh, I agree with Carlson's analysis that they're feeling undefended and somewhat neglected by the entire political class. And remember, why is this is so this is so important? What was Trump's value proposition in 2016 in one sentence, in one binary? I will take on everybody for the nobodies. It's me and you deplorables. Me and you, updating the term, credulous rubes versus everybody inside the beltway versus the cultural elites. He has to own that space. That is his market position. And it uh, and it uh, means that people will overlook some of his more boorish conduct. Or poor choices on Twitter and elsewhere, because they know this guy is on my side of the skirmish line fighting for my interests and saying, hey, all you have to do is play by those same rules that everybody else plays by and you get a fair shake in this country. That's really not that complicated. And Tucker Carlson argues, look, um, can this happen? Can you petition and pressure your Republican office holders and candidates to change the party? Sure you can. So how does this change? Can Republican office holders change their party? Yes, they can. We just have to make them. These are not, by and large, evil people. Mike Braun is not an evil person. Despite the way they talk, they're not secretly working for the other side. Most of them are just empty, sad people. And politics is the way they fill the yawning void inside where a personal life should be. They're pleasers. <laughs> they're searching for the approval of strangers. It's so true. I mean, he's got the, uh, prof- uh, the, the profile of the standard issue politician down pat. I love that phraseology. They're, they're not uh, mean people. They're not bad people. They're just sad, empty people. Yawning, empty space inside them where that's filled by politics where a personal life should be, just as what's between their ears uh, is filled by a poll-tested cant where a brain should be. And so you have to power through that. And I think that's right. I think that's right. Victor Davis Hansen, writing a National Review, about uh, how the election sets up now, uh, that the result of the rioting and the protesting and the unrest is that, I'm quoting VDH now, the 2020 election is no longer really about Biden and Trump, Democrat or Republican policies or progressive and conservative agendas. Now it's all about America as it has been before May 20, May 2020, and what has now followed. Much of the country believes America is racist, cruel, incapable of self-correction for its so-called original sins. Uh, And uh, the other half of the country will vote to preserve what is under attack. They feel that the the dreamy world of demonstrations, demonstrators and rioters is an Orwellian vision far worse than the present reality that they are protesting. Those are the two camps, as it were, according to VDH. And he um, suggests uh, lament, lamentably that the angry and the demonstrating are loud and visible. Their opponents are quiet and angry. The election will not just reveal who is more numerous, but sadly, who is the angriest. Um, That may be in part true. You know, is there a silent majority that is commonsensical, even if not uh, demonstrative? We're going to find out. I agree with that. But in the meantime, while we're waiting for that question to be answered on Election Day, uh, Tucker Carlson's prescription of sort of a restatement of basic first principles and a clear drawing of lines between 
the civilized and the reasonable and the lunatics and the unreasonable and the violent. Yeah, that's a worthwhile exercise for both President Trump and the Republican Party. This is Dan Proft. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We uh, spoke about uh, Black Lives Matter in terms of how it's organized legally. Uh, it is uh, not a 501c3 organization, so it uses a nonprofit called Thousand Currents as a pass-through for the donations and thus the money to operate. Thousand Currents, which uh, features a convicted terrorist on its board of directors. Of course it does. Uh, but the question is, um, are the... Um, Neo-Marxist uh, founders of Black Lives Matter, including Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza, who that's how they describe themselves. That's not casting aspersions. That's how Patrice Cullors describes both her and Alicia Garza. Are they in violation of uh, the uh, IRS laws with respect to uh, the governance of nonprofits? Well, uh, for more on this and uh, some FEC questions as well. Pleased to be joined by Cleta Mitchell, who is a conservative political law attorney. She's a partner at Foley and Lardner and an expert on campaign finance regulation and tax laws governing charitable organizations. Cleta, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, um, the you know, the, the operation of Black Lives Matter, which is uh, getting so much attention and and, uh, and and correspondingly raising a lot of money, the, the pass throughs of uh, the use of a of a of a thousand currents nonprofit that has a 51c3 status to be the funnel of money from donors to Black Lives Matter, which is not C3. Uh, the linkage with Act Blue Charities, which is also a 501c3. Uh, and then um, at the same time, you have Miss Colors and uh, p- perhaps others in Black Lives Matter, but certainly Miss Colors because this was on CNN. Uh, saying to the world that the goal of Black Lives Matter is to get Trump out of office. And so that is a political statement, I believe, and that potentially runs afoul of 501c3 strictures. So can you just sort of give us some breadth and depth on what you can and can't do and and apply that to how Black Lives Matter is set up and how Miss Colors is behaving? Well, let's start with the fact she's breaking the law. Okay, But um, why should that uh, surprise any of us? A fiscal sponsorship is where a, uh, and it's a, it's a not an unusual practice, um, particularly on the left. There are tons of these on the left. I don't really know very many on the right, frankly, but that's that's a pattern. But um, a fiscal sponsor is a 501c3 that uh, agrees to and offers to other organizations or projects that. It basically says, look, we've gone through the, problem, the process of obtaining the tax-exempt status, and we'll be your sponsor. And then you don't have to go through and apply for that separately. You can, you can operate under our umbrella. However, any time a 501c3 takes on uh, an entity, a project, uh, an organization, that organization – 
is subject to the identical rules and regulations that apply to the sponsor. So charitable contributions to Thousand Currents, as you pointed out, that is the Black Lives Matter fiscal sponsor, they, they, their tax-exempt status, it's the Thousand Currents tax-exempt status that is threatened by the activities and comments and statements of Black Lives Matter leaders appearing in their capacity on behalf of Black Lives Matter. So any any violation of law that's committed by Black Lives Matter personnel and basically what the IRS says is if a 501c3 makes a disbursement for a communication that constitutes partisan campaign intervention, then that 501c3 is automatically uh, subject to having its tax-exempt status revoked. Now, because Black Lives Matter doesn't have its own tax-exempt status, then it's thousand current tax-exempt status that is at risk. But that would rec- and that's who the IRS should be coming down on. Yeah, and, and, does, and does the IRS need to have uh, a formal complaint filed in order to investigate, or can they take this up on their own initiative? Well, they could take it up on their own initiative. Um, I represented quite a number of the oh, Tea Party organizations, conservative organizations, yeah. who, who were subjected to IRS taking things up on their own and basically uh, delaying for years uh, tax exempt status and also you know, seeing the audits that the IRS uh, targeted conservative organizations during the, during the Obama administration. But so, yes, the IRS definitely could take it up. But, but it isn't likely to unless someone files a complaint with the IRS demanding that the IRS, if there were to be a huge outcry of people sending letters to the IRS saying, this is what happened, here's the link, Thousand Current should lose its tax-exempt status. I suppose because that, that person, yeah. that person was appearing in her capacity on behalf of Black Lives Matter. It's uh, such a... Um fascinating juxtaposition in the Obama administration. You had the illegal targeting of uh, groups based on their political and religious beliefs as it pertains to C3 status. Nothing happened. Uh, and, and, and it was, as you said, IRS taking that up on their own initiative, that sort of illegal targeting, nobody held accountable. And here you have uh, illegal actions by a 501c3 designee, as it were, and the IRS won't touch it under a Republican president, and it re- would require some sort of public outcry to even perhaps force them to consider it. Uh, it. It seems to me that speaks a lot about the culture of the two parties. Oh, it is. You know, it's a, it speaks a lot about the culture of the deep state that the president talks about. Yeah. It absolutely is real. And, and it's always the situation that conservatives are subjected to uh, scrutiny and attack and then when uh, and and when the Republicans are in charge, they don't do that. Republicans don't do that to their opponents. We we don't go burn things. We don't have big demonstrations. Uh, no, and and nobody's you know, and, and of course in the yeah, and nobody's of course advocating that we do that. But but we are advocating. Yeah. Uh, you could uh, actually enforce the law. I mean, you could per, you could proactively enforce the law. That's not out of bounds, but but they're too <laughs> afraid. To, yeah, they're too afraid to do that. And that's one of the things that's frustrating, I suppose. When we come back with Cleta Mitchell, I want to uh, discuss another agency 
that has uh, oversight responsibilities but uh, seems generally incapable of delivering any accountability, the Federal Election Commission. Whatever happened to those FEC complaints against Ilhan Omar and AOC? More with Cleta Mitchell coming up. This is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with uh, tax and election attorney, Cleta Mitchell. And uh, Cleta, I want to ask you, uh, since you're an FEC expert, what about those complaints that were filed against Ilhan Omar and AOC and then just sort of disappear uh, what, what of the FEC and the idea that it holds politicians accountable for complying with federal election law? Well, actually, I think that in addition to whatever Judicial Watch may have filed, there's also there are a series of complaints that have been filed by the National Legal Policy Center, NLPC. They have been really targeting Omar because of all of the things that she's done, you know, basically supporting her personal lifestyle by having her campaign pay Right. You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to the first, the adulterous affair in which she was engaged with her political consultant. I think now they're getting married. Look, here's what happens at the FEC, and it always happens, is that it takes years for the FEC to investigate and adjudicate a complaint. And we have the added problem now of the fact that the Democrats have basically filibustered and kept uh, any nominees from being confirmed to the FEC. So we've been, since last September, the FEC, it can have no more than three members of the six members that can have no more than three of the same political party. As of last September, the FEC was had two holdover Democrats, one holdover Republican. So it didn't even have a quorum to have a meeting. You have to have four members present to have a quorum. So it could not approve anything, disapprove anything. The president did finally get a nominee confirmed who had been languishing for more than a year. He was confirmed a couple of weeks ago. Finally, now we have a quorum again. And then earlier this week, Republican who'd been there quite a long time holding down the fort, and now she was going to retire. So, so another nominee has been submitted earlier this week by the White House, and they're scrambling, hopefully, to find an additional Republican to nominate. The Democrats refuse to send any names to be nominated at all because they want to get rid of the six-member commission and they want to appoint a czar who can basically act as some of these state agencies around the country. Take Montana, for instance. That's a horrible situation there. And they have a czar who just basically goes after Republicans. And so that's what the Democrats want. So you have a commission and a framework that was structured in the 70s. It was intended to make it impossible for one party to just run roughshod over the other. But now the left and the Democrats don't like that because they no longer, over the last 20 years, have not been able to always get what they used to be able to do. They always had a Republican who would throw in with them to do bad things. Of course. And they haven't been able to get that. Of course. And they haven't been able to get that, so now they want to restructure the age. <laughs> sure. That's that's what they call campaign finance reform. And, um, yes. you know, and, and again, no, nobody wants to interrupt that lovely romance between Omar and her her current paramour. So, you know, you wouldn't want to mess that up with a uncomfortable FEC prosecution. I, I understand completely. 
Uh, Cleta Mitchell, conservative political law attorney, partner at Foley and Lardner, expert on campaign finance regulation and tax laws governing charitable organizations, as you heard. Cleta, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. Former Vice President Joe Biden came out of his basement for the first time in uh, three months to prattle on about COVID-19 and Russian collusion fantasies, which means we'll have six more weeks of that. Here's what he said about COVID-19 and the president's failure to lead and all the usual pablum. For weeks, uh, we've been seeing the warning signs. Numbers don't lie. Infection rates are now going up in more states than they're going down. More than 125,000 people in the United States have lost their lives. And those numbers and new infections continue to grow at an alarming rate. And once again, is confronting the simple fact that we won't be able to solve the economic crisis without a rigorous public health approach. They're not separable. Despite the administration's propaganda that their response should be a cause for celebration, despite President Trump's request that we should slow down testing because he thinks it makes him look bad, the COVID-19 is still here, and the daily threat to American health and prosperity is continuing. Yeah, you got to have the specter of the threat so that you can engender fear and use that fear to do what? Insinuate, uh, from Biden's perspective, a reimposition of lockdowns. Listen. What happened? Now it's almost July, and it seems like our wartime president has surrendered, waved the right flag, what white flag, and left the battlefield. Today we're facing a serious threat, and we have to meet it. We have to meet it as one country, but the president gives no direction and he pits us against one another. We can't continue like this, half recovering and half getting worse. We can't continue half wearing masks and half rejecting science. We can't continue half with a plan and half just hoping for the best. You know, we won't defeat this virus with a piecemeal approach, lifting restrictions prematurely, increasing the volatility of the crisis, raising the likelihood of needing to reimpose restrictions. You know, until our science catches up to reality, until we have better treatment for those who become infected and ultimately are safe, proven, widely available vaccines, we have to continue to do all we can as a people and a government to keep our fellow Americans safe and healthy. It's malpractice to not seize upon what Joe Biden said there. It is malpractice by President Trump and his campaign team and the White House and congressional Republicans to not seize on what Joe Biden said and provide all the contextual information you get on this show, which they obviously have access to as well. It is malpractice to let him get away with saying restrictions were lifted too early, number one, and number two, clearly insinuate support for lockdowns. It's a way to frame the handling of this. You get a Joe Biden and you get another outbreak of COVID-19 in the winter after the November 3rd election into the spring. uh, And we don't have a vaccine yet. And Joe Biden is going to be proposing national lockdowns. 
he is going to be using his bully pulpit, if not perhaps congressional majorities, to impose lockdowns on this country. These are one-size-fits-all central planners, lest we forget. I, I don't understand how Republicans and the president think it is to their political benefit, much less the economic and freedom benefits of the American people to be allowed to allow these individuals, these fear mongers to say these things unchallenged for more on this. We're pleased to be joined by Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics. Steve, thanks for joining us. Hey, Dan, I, you know, I, I think you may even be angrier than I am about that ridiculous statement by Joe Biden. And I want to say one thing right off the bat. Here's the problem that Democrats have when they say, oh, you know, Trump is responsible for the 120,000 deaths and so on. Wait a minute. The death rate in blue states run by Democratic governors and Democratic mayors was twice as high as it was in red states. That is to say, you were twice as likely to die if you had a, a Democratic governor than a Republican governor. That's point number one. Number two, lockdowns had no effect on the death rates. The states actually that had the strictest lockdown policies had virtually the highest death rates. It's not 100% correlation, but very high in the opposite direction of what Biden just said. And finally, I wonder when he said, you know, we can't have half the country wearing masks and the other are not wearing masks. Does that mean he's going to mandate? Yes, that's what it means. That's what it means. Even if they're in Idaho, they have to wear a mask? Yes. And I don't know why we're having this discussion and President Trump and Republicans aren't driving the discussion. Because they're the stupid party. I mean, look, they should be going right at the heart of this. We know why people died, folks, with certainty why over half the people died, because of incompetence of people like Pritzker and Cuomo and Murphy in New Jersey and others who do not keep nursing homes safe. Over half of the deaths were nursing homes because of idiotic policies. And I would say almost criminally neglectful policies by these governors. By the way, it's amazing. Cuomo, where he's running around the country right now saying, we did it right in New York. Uh, Texas didn't do it right. Texas has one twentieth of the deaths. I mean, it's like everything's upside down. The number of people who died in Texas is one twentieth the number of people who died in New York. Steve, here's the problem, because let's hold everybody accountable here, because the incentives are the same for Republican and Democrat politicians, and some are better at resisting those moral hazards than others. When Greg Abbott pauses the reopening, Ducey pauses the reopening or reinstitutes lockdown policies, restaurants and so forth, that doesn't help. It doesn't help. Their, their political incentives are to do it as well. The deaths and hospitalizations say there's no reason to do it, but it provides political cover for the demagogues and the fear mongers. And you reignite the Dutch tulip frenzy all over again. That's what they're doing. Precisely. I said this a couple of weeks ago on your show. I said again, we are up against Operation Chaos. The Democrats want to shut down the economy again. It's almost like they're rooting for people to die in these red states so they can score political points. As I see, you know, we told that these states like Florida and Georgia and Texas opened up that, you know, you'd have more cases. It is quite infuriating. We are starting to see an economic recovery. And that's making Democrats very, very nervous. They don't want people to go back to work. Pelosi, she wants to extend unemployment benefits. She wants to extend those through the end of the year. Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot have an economic recovery in this country if you have four out of five workers staying home because Pelosi is sending them checks from the taxpayer. I mean, it's sabotage is what it is by the Democrats. And for Biden to say, oh, we would have done it right. What would he have done differently? Would he continue the lockdown for another three months? Yes, that's what he's saying. Well, because reporters, the pre-approved reporters asking pre-approved questions, uh, Biden even said it out loud, uh, which he shouldn't have. 
what the the projection that will that uh, we'll find out tomorrow is 2.37 million new jobs created in June. Uh, if that number uh, turns out to be true, according to the Department of Labor, what does that tell us about uh, the pace of recovery? Well, the recovery is, is going at a pretty nice pace. I mean, look, I, I, as you know, I've been a bit pessimistic, more pessimistic than the White House has been because we've done severe, severe damage. And, and what infuriates me about Joe Biden's little soliloquy there is he's acting as if the lockdowns were a success. If there's any lesson here, it is that we could never, 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 never do this again. We destroyed our economy. We caused massive amounts of hardship for tens of millions of Americans. And to act like, let's just do it all over again, like it was some great success when we have evidence from around the world. What about Japan? Japan has, a th- has had a thousand deaths from coronavirus. Uh, they've never shut down their economy and they have a hundred million people. All right, so let, give us a progress report on how you, Kudlow, Laffer, at all, Forbes, are doing in uh, helping to craft uh, an economic policy agenda for the rest of the, the, this term and for the campaign for Trump. Well, they'd better get this right. I'll just I'll leave you with this. So we have a study coming out on Monday, so you're getting at the uh, you know, sneak preview. What well, University of Chicago economist Jason Mulligan and I did a study. We find that if you extend the unemployment benefits for six months, that will mean 10 million fewer working Americans by the end of the year. 10 million. If you do the payroll tax, suspend the payroll tax for the rest of the year, you get 3 million additional jobs. So that's a 13 job swing from the Pelosi plan uh, versus the, the Trump plan, which with Trump's plan creating 13 million more jobs than Pelosi's plan. So I think that's pretty simple. If Republicans pass the, the uh, extension of the unemployment benefits for six more months, the election is over. Democrats will win a landslide election because we'll have a severe recession in November, and it will be actually manufactured by Pelosi. She's not stupid, Dan. She's not stupid. She knows exactly what she's doing. Yeah, she's not that smart either, but um, she doesn't, well, need, she doesn't I mean, need to be, unfortunately. Well, we'll see about that. But, you know, I, I do think if we do the payroll, keep the economy open and running. Look, I don't have a problem with masks, by the way. I mean, I just think every individual, if you're inside, if you're in, in, like in a store or something like that, you should wear a mask. I'm in favor of that. You don't have to wear a mask outside. And one last thing, get outside this weekend, folks. If you want to stay, stay healthy and safe, the best thing is being outdoors. Chairs is the vaccine. Uh, okay. Uh, Steve, yes. Steve. No, every study shows uh, keep, keeping people locked in their house is the dumbest thing. Yeah, I understand. I understand. I understand. Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, Trumponomics author. Steve, thanks for joining us. Okay, guys. Have a great 4th of July. And, uh, you know, the last one is called Dependent State. It's called Independent State. Yeah, it could be our last one, so let's enjoy it. <laughs> All right. See ya. danproftshow.com Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. Listen up, small business owner operators, payroll protection program. An important development last night, the Senate passed by unanimous consent a five-week extension for the payroll protection program, setting a new deadline of August 8th. No, that's good news because you have $130 billion in uh, funds that have not been distributed, that have not been 
applied for and thus not distributed with respect to that second round of PPP funding after that first round of PPP funding flew out the door. And so, look, we're talking about 25 percent of restaurants that may go away in New York and Chicago, particularly service sector businesses. It's important to note there is still this money available that has been appropriated by Congress. Now, this still needs to pass the House and be signed by the president, but I suspect it will. And so there is still those dollars available. You know, try to save as many businesses as you can, no matter how stupid some of the policies are at the state and local level. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jovita Carranza. She is the 26th administrator of the U.S. Small Business Administration and former uh, treasurer of the United States at the U.S. Department of Treasury. Jovita Carranza, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Dan, and that's quite an introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. And, and so um, uh, give us your sense of the last three months and, and what the SBA has done with the Payroll Protection Program, but also with other lending uh, programs uh, for small business in this country, how you think it's gone and, and what, what has been learned. Yes, Dan, I'll answer your question like in threefold. Number one, I'm really, really looking forward to traveling to Chicago and visiting with the small businesses in Chicago area. You know, Illinois received over $22 billion in the PPP, um, the Paycheck Protection Program, and that represents about 194,000, a little over 194,000 small businesses. So as I travel the, the country, I, I am out there trying to learn, you know, how the funds are being appropriated by the small businesses. In other words, how many employees are they retaining? Um, how are they slowly opening their businesses? You mentioned earlier on about the hotels and the restaurant. I'm really focused on visiting some restaurants. Because this Paycheck Protection Program uh, that the president put you know, an historic, he took historic action making these um, half trillion, or how should I say, yeah, half trillion dollars worth of uh, funds to small businesses throughout the United States. Unprecedented, definitely needed. It served as a lifeline. Uh, those are the testimonials these small businesses are providing me when I visit their, their uh, businesses. And I'm very encouraged that, you know, the, the PPP reached almost, uh, almost 5 million small businesses. And when we look at small businesses, we don't look at them as brick and mortar or as a loan number. We look at them as contributors to the community. They have families. They retain their employees. Those employees have families. So it's a really ecosystem that I'm, I'm out here to try to learn more uh, about. I want to talk about some of the concerns that have been raised about the PPP program for those that receive PPP funds or still uh, could and might. Uh, one is uh, any change of the rules with respect to the loan forgiveness after the fact and uh, and, and concern that, you know, I, I was told it was going to be this with respect to covering overhead and paying employees. And then now you have some push to rewrite it to make it that to if for fraud prevention purposes or whatever. Just the, the how, what would you say to any concern about sort of ex post facto rulemaking? with respect to what the governance of PPP. Thank you, Dan, because your question will help me clarify to your audience that every one of the guidances that we put out there or the interim rules or the frequently asked question type um, documentation that we put on SBA.gov to guide the borrower and the lender on how to appropriate these funds, the forgiveness has not changed. Um, I don't see any immediate changes, at least at this point, because, again, um, the 
the remaining 129 or 39 billion dollars has not been appropriated yet and we we don't have any guidelines on on those funds as of yet but at this point if there are any changes we're definitely we've definitely learned from all of the previous implementations that clarity expediency and also um extensive communication is very very important so as not to commu confuse the lenders or the borrowers and so we'll we'll be much better at it and hopefully there won't be any changes the forgiveness is the forgiveness applications are actually being submitted as we speak and uh there was also criticism initially and again i i i think it was remarkable how much money was distributed as quickly as it was to get in the hands of small businesses using private banks i thought i think the program was was about as good as you can do in that political environment um, and, and in that moment of crisis. But there's still criticism to say, hey, look, you have uh, companies that weren't really in trouble that just took the free money. And uh, meanwhile, uh, there were other companies that are, you know, st sort of got lost in the in the, the, the process, either with their bank or with SBA to access PPP. Is there any concern about uh, the gaming of the system and, and businesses getting money that didn't need the money but taking it because it's free and forgivable? I'll, ask, I'll answer that question uh, in, two, in two ways. The PPB did its job. We have seen extraordinary job retention. I personally have visited those small businesses, and I have evidence that these small businesses have retained their employees, maybe not all, but they have, and they're bringing them in uh, uh, as their volume or their uh, customer base is growing. And this was not an economic issue. It was a, a medical pandemic issue. And so um, I urge all the small businesses, I would be remiss if I could if I didn't take this opportunity to urge all small businesses to really support the CDC guidelines and protect their employees and their customers. You see, the PPP has emerged as one of the most successful and consequential federal disaster responses. And to your point about where did the money go, Dan, the funding, 45% of the loans by volume and total value went to low-income counties. And I'm talking about counties, very rural, the agriculture, um, metro, urban, and so, Dan, I, I assure you that every loan is being assessed and every community has been served. And those that perhaps they, they followed the law, those that that um, that you cite that were public companies or perhaps extended the um, interpretation of the particular uh, guidance and then realized, no, this is not for us, and then return the money. We have several billions of dollars that were returned. Of course, we haven't made that public, but I believe that everyone that should have received the money has received the money. And can we do more? Yes, we're focused on sole proprietors and independent contractors at this time. She is Jovita Carranza, 26th Administrator of the U.S. Small Business Administration, former Treasurer of the United States at the U.S. Department of Treasury. And uh, she's coming to town on July 2nd, uh, tomorrow, from uh, Michigan, where she is now. Jovita Carranza, thanks so much for joining us, and safe travels from Michigan to the Windy City. Thank you, Dan. I'm looking forward to going back home, so thank you.
listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and it appears the summer of love in Seattle is coming to an end, and uh, this at the order of the very same mayor who said uh, we could be looking at a summer of love with the installation of a new autonomous country inside the corporate boundaries of Seattle, that being Chaz slash Chop. Uh, but uh, Mayor Durkin uh, it for, uh, issued the order to clear the Chop zone uh, and the police chief, Carmen Best, saying in a statement uh, as uh, she moved to execute the order, this order in our police response comes after weeks of violence in and around the Capitol Hill occupied protest zone, including four shootings resulting in multiple injuries and the death of two teenagers, to which one outspoken Seattle City Council member said the cause was capitalism. Uh-huh. I support peaceful demonstrations, said Police Chief Best, adding the chop has become lawless and brutal for shootings to fatal robberies, assaults, violence and countless property crimes have occurred in this several block area. Oh, Boy, who could have predicted um, those sorts of public safety failings in this uh, experiment in self-slash-community governance? Uh, good news for those CHOP-slash-Chaz fans, though. On the other side of the country in New York, the Occupy City Hall protest, uh, P- uh, people have set up a no-pig zone. They're calling for the city to defund and abolish the New York Police Department. Of course they are. A sign uh, saying this is the City Hall Autonomous Zone, Chaz, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, City Hall Autonomous Zone across the country in New York City. So we'll see how that experiment in self-governance goes. For more on these topics and others, the Jacobins, the bourgeois Bolsheviks, as he calls them, we're pleased to be joined by Matt Purple, senior editor at the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, Dan, good to be with you, and so very sad to hear that our uh, world's newest nation has already come to an end. It's a tough thing to start a new nation, Matt, and, uh, you know, uh, it's like uh, starting up a new business. You know, there's going to be a lot of stops and starts, so Seattle failed, but we still have hope in New York City. Yeah, you always take another swing at it, and, you know, to be fair, when most new businesses are started, there aren't people killed within a matter of weeks. Not usually. something that happens. Not usually. (laughs) There wasn't in Chaz or Chop or whatever we're calling it now. But uh, but no, and I, and I took to, to to head before that that uh, tweet that you were talking about, where the woman blamed capitalism for the reason why Chop failed, even though Chop was set up specifically not to be capitalist as a repudiation of capitalism, yet still somehow capitalism is responsible for it failing. Uh, you know, those of us who consider ourselves to be capitalists just can't win. It seems. Well, it, it, the uh, I, I concede your point that the logic is difficult to follow. Uh, there's no question. <laughs> uh, John McWhorter, uh, the linguist uh, from Columbia University, had a good piece in uh, Reason.com uh, where he talks about um, uh, the he calls it TWA, third wave anti-racism, and you know he suggests there's some positive outgrowths from the conversations that are being prompted on policing in America and so forth. But he also notes progressive Americans task is not to learn charismatic, but purposeless self-flagellational routines, but to fight injustices with sense and logic. Only third wave anti-racism adherents think the two are the same. So 
you know, for those who are trying to sort of say, well, there's some there's something to be gleaned from this. Yes, but it is not from the people that cannot string together a coherent thought. Yeah, and it's amazing how quickly we've come to that. Uh, what, what really boggles my mind here is how fast this has all moved. Because for about five seconds after that, after George Floyd was killed, we were having productive conversations about no-knock warrants and policing reforms and chokehold bans and, and all these things that really are worth discussing. And we were having a, a reckoning to an extent with the racism in our past. Every nation has racism in their past, and we're no different from that. And it, it just it is incredible how quickly we move to, okay, we're going to get rid of police departments altogether. And, okay, we're going to start tearing down statues, not just of Confederate memorials, which is wrong in and of itself. That needs to be done through democratic deliberation if it's going to happen. Uh, but of, of, of a Union soldier up in, in Wisconsin, of uh, Abraham Lincoln standing by a freed slave in Boston. It just everything is so accelerated and there's no room really for sense and logical discussion in between. Um, I want to pick up right there when we come back, uh, because you wrote a provocative piece, the American conservative uh, about why we should not cheer Woodrow Wilson's removal uh, as a namesake at a college on the campus of Princeton university, even though he was a unrepentant bigot uh, in life more with Matt purple, senior editor at the American conservative. Right seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back we're speaking with matt purple he's a senior editor at the american conservative and matt uh, woodrow wilson uh, has been removed as a namesake at, at princeton university at the public policy college there, uh, you suggest that we shouldn't cheer its cancellation even while you acknowledge that he was a deplorable bigot. Yeah, we shouldn't cheer Woodrow Wilson, first and foremost. He is one of the worst presidents in American history. Uh, he's certainly at least up there with Franklin Pierce and the pre-Civil War presidents in, in terms of how badly they carried out their duties in office. And, and he really was a racist. I mean, screened birth of a nation at the White House, the yep. whole thing. Mm -hmm. And now Princeton has, has removed his name from their public policy school. And what I'm saying is there's a t temptation, I think, on the part of conservatives to cheer this and say, ha, we got a leftist scalp too. You know, there's racists on the left as well. And if you're going to tear down our history, you're going to have to get rid of them too. And what I worry is this mob is in such a mindless mood. Uh, they have such an appetite for destruction that they, they're not really thinking about left versus right. They're not really fighting for one particular side or another, I tend to think they would be all too happy to tear down Woodrow Wilson and then tear down FDR because of the internment camps and so on and so on. Uh, I, I think this is a fool's game, and I don't think conservatives should be playing it. I think we should be 
standing up for our history as incremental as the change within it happened and as flawed as it might be. Yeah, I think that's well said. Um, in addition to that, I think the other aspect of this is, you know, not just, oh, they're getting the left, too. And I, I agree with you. They are completely willing to cannibalize those that are trying to be fellow travelers. But in addition to that, conservatives do this as well, which is to say, well, sure, I don't like Woodrow Wilson. I have no affinity for Robert E. Lee. If you want to take down those statues, take them down. And this is a way to show how reasonable we are because we're willing to concede some of the targets of their erasure. The problem, as you point out, is you're conceding the under the underlying point about their erasure through mob action. Yeah, you want to read about the French Revolution or the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which there are parallels to what we're in the midst of right now in terms of those two events. There is no satiating the mob. There is no telling them, oh, you know, we'll give you this and then surely you'll disperse and you'll calm down. Uh, that doesn't work because that's not how a mob works. They keep bleeding for more. Uh, it is a very dangerous thing to have to contend with. And again, this has really transcended all logical discussions when you're tearing down a statue of a Union soldier, when you're canceling a syrup brand. I mean, this has just gone much too far. And I think before we can have any further logical discussions about what Woodrow Wilson really was, or you know how many Confederate statues need to come down, I, I think first we have to say to the mob, no, you are not making these decisions. You have no authority here. Uh, these are for democratically elected governments to discuss and to uh, and to rule on and not for you. Well, right. And, and uh, we had this uh, conversation uh, on yesterday's show with Clarence Page from the Tribune, Chicago Tribune columnist, of course. And, um, you know, generally speaking uh, on this, the center left, but he, he wrote a column about why he has this racist memorabilia collection that he sort of inadvertently started several years ago. Uh, and and he said, you know, part of the part of why I keep it is because it's a reminder of where we were. But it was also a reminder of how far we've come. And you can only understand that if you have some appreciation for history, some respect for it. You can acknowledge the good, the bad and the ugly of the past. And that's exactly what you should do. But you can't erase it because then you have no measure of where you're at in the present. Exactly. And, and I understand absolutely why an African-American would be offended by a Confederate memorial. I understand why they would want that to come down. Uh, but, you know, here in Al Old Town Alexandria, we used to have they took it down about a few weeks ago. But we used to have a statue of a Confederate soldier. Uh, and every time I would drive by that, I would think about our past and, and the racism therein and what Virginia tried to do during the Confederacy, what it ultimately did successfully do, not Alexandria, but, but Virginia itself. And uh, again, I think you have to strike a balance between making sure that you're not lionizing what these people did, you know, making sure that you're emphasizing the real evil of what was transpiring there, uh, but also making sure that we remember, making sure that we don't blot it out, because uh, what the mob is saying right now is not that they want us to remember history. Uh, they want to shut out history completely. They want to start from year zero, just like the, the French revolutionaries did. And I think that is just a terrible course to take. Uh, speaking of historical perspective, uh, in a piece that you penned for the American conservative on the bourgeois Bolsheviks, you uh, begin by uh, invoking the uh, weather underground of the 60s. And, and so what's your handle on the manifestation of the sort of privilege, the the scions of the privileged engaging in violence and otherwise, um, you know, the, the incoherent wokeness we were speaking about earlier. Yes. Well, the weather underground of the terrorists who blew up several federal buildings during the 1970s, they were all white. 
and and, and they then, were mostly and, and, privileged and then, and then a came from rich backgrounds. Yeah, and then a couple Sorry, of them be, a couple of them became professors at uh, universities in Illinois. Uh, Bill Ayers at University of Illinois Chicago, Bernadine Dorn at the Northwestern University Law Center. I mean, it's the most incredible and despicable thing. But anyway, sorry to interrupt. Yes, and your audience may be familiar. Uh, befriended a certain future president of the United States while they were there. Yes. Uh, but, but yes, uh, you know, these were very privileged people. And what took over was this kind of hatred of everywhere that they had come from. They came to loathe their own privilege so much that it extended into a greater contempt for the world around them. And it ended with them just wanting to, to tear it all down. I cite the example of Diana Outen in my piece, who grew up very privileged in uh, Illinois, and she was one of the, the Weatherman terrorists who was who died when a, a townhouse exploded. And therein, they were building a bomb to try to uh, blow up a, a, an officer's dance at Fort Dix that probably would have killed dozens, if not hundreds of people. So you really can come to, w- when you're that privileged and when you come to loathe yourself that much, you can come to a very dire endpoint. And if you go to some of these protests, if you look at who some of these people are, this is not a working class revolt for the most part, right? This is not the proletariat rising up. This is the boardroom. This is the academy, the faculty lounge. This is happening on social media, whose users tend to be disproportionately middle class, upper class. And I think that you're seeing the results of that. I mean, it, it, these are bourgeois Bolsheviks, as I say in the piece. Yeah, being led by neo-Marxist ideological activists uh, that head up Black Lives Matter. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure you saw the story about the woman who's getting paid an exorbitant amount of money, something like $40,000 a lecture, I think, to go around to different schools uh, and to teach about how awful her own white privilege is. Isn't that just a racket? I mean, what, what a country America is, if you can possibly pull it off, right? <laughs> this, this kind of stuff is, is absurd. It's comical. It's ludicrous. And I think we ought to keep in mind uh, the real working class victims here, or at least some of them, uh, who are the shopkeepers who had their, uh, you know, their livelihoods destroyed during these riots that we've had, uh, and for whom tearing down a statue is not going to do much good to bring that back. He is Matt Purple, senior editor at the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This is a uh, fun story uh, picked up by Andrew Stiles over at Washington Free Beacon, uh, who picked up a New York Times report that was uh, published uh, over the weekend. Uh, about that uh, forthcoming third memoir from former President Barack Obama that still isn't finished. Maybe Bill Ayers could help. There's some argument that he has helped before. Hmm. Former President Barack Obama has been working on his third memoir for several years. And in that time, his uh, wife, Michelle, of course, uh, has been uh, on her best-selling memoir tour, Becoming doing uh, stadiums before the COVID-19 outbreak and uh, having uh, becoming optioned into a documentary on the book tour, uh, helpfully by the (laughs) production company the Obamas set up uh, as part of their $50 million deal with Netflix. Uh, Remember, according to The Atlantic, when Obama discussed the book for which he and Michelle received a combined advance of $65 million dollars, he pointed out that he would be writing it himself, unlike his wife, who used a ghostwriter. 
<laughs> sort of he's sort of uh, jumpy. Um, he's a little bit uh, defensive about uh, his wife's success and uh, <laughs> you know, her using a ghostwriter. I'm not using a ghostwriter. Hmm. Uh, healthy competition, maybe. I don't know. A New York Times uh, report suggested some sensitivity about his lack of productivity in relation to his wife. I am writing every word myself. That's why it's taking longer. Obama is described uh, in the piece as a deliberate writer prone to procrastination and lengthy digression. Uh, That is a very polite way of saying intellectual lightweight prone to navel gazing and thus these uh, digressions. I I mean, I know you can have a a tome and it could turn out like War and Peace or Atlas Shrugged, but he's not Leo Tolstoy or Ayn Rand. So the fact that uh, his uh, first draft was uh, between 600 and 800 pages and it was delivered in 2020 after several years of work doesn't mean it's a classic. It means it's probably a rambling, self-indulgent mess. And it also means that the book uh, is unlikely to be published before the November election. Now, the, the New York Times notes, too, that uh, Obama's I mean, <laughs> self-regard Obama is seriously considering splitting the project into two volumes uh, so that he can get something out before the end of the year, you know, in time to be a stocking stuffer. If this uh, magnum opus will fit into a stocking, uh, the, the deconstructing of Barack Obama, if you're paying attention, as I said from the outset, as somebody who knew him when he was a lowly state senator in Illinois, uh, then to U.S. and, of course, then to the presidency. This guy was always the flim-flam man, somebody who uh, people confused as being intelligent because he used proper syntax and spoke in complete sentences. We're not used to people in Chicago and Illinois speaking in complete sentences. But it's just all stringing together meaningless platitudes, which is a redundancy. And redundancy is, I'm sure, something that will be featured in the forthcoming third Obama memoir. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.